thank you for being here. It's a, uh, such a uh, packed weekend, and um, I know it's been a challenging week. Some of you have experienced loss this week, and uh, as you know, we've lost some friends in, uh, with our sister church in Cleveland, and some of you have had personal losses this past week. I know it's been a challenging, challenging week, and I'm glad that we can be together as the, uh, as the, the body of Christ uh, this morning. Um, if you're a guest this morning, we have been camped out in the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a young church living in the Greek city of Corinth. Now, the Corinthians, before they related to Christ, they had mentors in their world. Uh, they had mentors who uh, taught them how to see the world. What's right, what's wrong, the ultimate good, the meaning of justice, what is valuable. Those mentors may have been teachers, professors, parents, the marketplace, or simply the cultural way of doing things. But in becoming Christians and choosing to follow Christ, to walk down a different path, they were choosing a new mentor. And in many areas of life, Jesus introduces us to a different way of seeing the world. Now that pathway of discipleship intersected with the way they viewed justice and goodness in human relationships, particularly with respect to sexuality and to marriage and to divorce. And that's the point of the chapters we have explored in the last few weeks. They had Lots of questions on these matters. Now that we belong to Christ, now that He is our guide, what is His will? And the answers to those questions are what help the Corinthians to grow, to move towards maturity. Well, I don't really have to tell you that people are asking the exact same questions today. Relational abandonment, And divorce are all too common in our communities. A new normal has settled in. And with it, cynicism about enduring love. Skepticism about marriage. The fear of commitment. You know, and it's tempting to think that this is unique to modern Western culture. But, as we'll see in just a moment, that same cynicism existed even in the religiously charged world of Jesus. It's not new. And so into this cynicism comes Jesus with a completely different story. A story that called men and women to a glorious restoration. A glorious ideal of what marriage was meant to be like from the very beginning. Yet Christ knew that that ideal was challenging then. It remains challenging today. And Jesus, aware of those challenges, tackled other questions that you and I struggle with. And the answers to those questions provided direction and hope healing, 
and forgiveness when marriages fail. So this morning, whatever your situation, single, married, or divorced, Jesus' words pulsate with relevance. They either will reach powerfully into your own heart, or they may equip you this morning to minister to others. You know, you're probably not surprised. This was not an easy message to prepare. There are so many nuances that there are questions I will not be able to answer for you this morning because there are so many situations that I I simply cannot cover every possible conceivable scenario. And I will need you, if you find yourself caught in some middle world, to not assume I'm judging you or not assume much, but to come and ask me or ask our other pastors what we think. The potential to be misunderstood in this message is heightened to an overcharged degree. So I ask you for your grace and your mercy to me this morning. If you are not yet married, or if you are divorced, as we said last week, be open to remaining single. We discussed that last week, long life, single adulthood is an equally valid pathway. We'll see Jesus allude to the same thing this week. But if you desire to be married, I don't want today's talk to make you afraid of making a commitment. But Jesus' picture of marriage should shape the kind of person you're looking for. And more importantly, it should shape the kind of person you envision becoming. If you are married today and really struggling, I pray that you'll find the power to persevere, and you'll find the encouragement to get the help that you need. Numbers of you here are coming today and you have lived or are right now in the middle of experiencing a failed marriage. And I have sat and cried with many of you in this room. My prayer today is that you would receive hope. You would receive a greater sense of freedom. Some of you are living under a burden of guilt that you are not, that God does not want you to live with. And then finally, there are some of you here today who have suffered through a divorce, and I don't know your situation. And it is not my intention to pass a judgment on your past. I would not presume to speak fairly about a marriage that ended without being at all a part of everything that went down and all that was involved. So, We've been in the seventh chapter of 1 Corinthians. And when addressing questions about divorce, Paul referenced the words of Jesus. Remember he said, I'm not coming up with this piece. This is what Jesus said. And so it makes sense today to go back to the words of Jesus before we leave this topic in Matthew chapter 19. And I'm going to read this text, and then we'll pray. And if you want to follow along, it's in page 8. 24. I'm going to begin at Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. Okay? And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? 
and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him then, Well, why did why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive this. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, there are difficult sayings and confusing sayings given in this Scripture in an area so personal, so heartfelt, for some so painful that we ask, Father, that this morning we could be faithful to these words and understand what they say to us so that our lives, Father, and the decisions that we make are in Your will. For in Your will, there is no better place to be, no happier place to be than the very center of Your will. So give us wisdom, Lord, for those that have questions or might disagree, let us work through these things in a reasonable way. Through Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. We're going to break down this section into different questions, okay? First section is verses 3 through 6 with the question, why didn't Jesus, did you notice this? He did not, at least initially, enter into the fray or enter into the debate. Did you catch that? So intriguing. And we should first notice the hostility that Jesus steps into. Did you notice that? They asked this question in order to test him. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any reason? It was designed to trap him. If Jesus contradicted Moses that would ruin his reputation. And secondly, we should note that even though they did possess ulterior motives, this was a real, live, active debate in this era of time. There were two major schools in Judaism. Both schools permitted divorce, but for different reasons. And each claimed the authority of Moses. Though it's interesting, did you see this? The Pharisees misquote Moses. We'll see this in a moment. Saying that he commanded, he commanded divorce. Here's where individual words can be important. 
when Jesus reflects their question back, he, say, he says not commanded. He said divorce was allowed or permitted. Now, one of these schools was very conservative, suggesting that divorce was allowed only for indecent sexual behavior, while the other school was very liberal, granting a divorce for almost any reason. More on that in just a little bit. So, the Pharisees had debated this issue for a long time without any resolution. So they decided to ask Jesus. And the debate fell over which loopholes for divorce were acceptable. They want to talk about when can a marriage be broken. So here's the question they're asking. How could a man in a man-oriented society divorce his wife and remain just before God? To this debate, Jesus first says, you are asking the wrong question. Their question reveals how low the condition of marriage had sunk. Cynicism about marriage and enduring love, cynicism about enduring love had reached an all-time low. The ideal, the design for marriage was long forgotten. Lifelong marriage was impossible. Divorce was inevitable. We do the same thing today. We adjust to the realities of life and then things become a norm for us that were never meant to be. So much so that we forget what it was like to live differently. That ideal is like a single image, vague memory of some old world that we know used to exist somewhere, sometime. We can liken these new norms to living in a post-9-1-1 world. We stand in long lines at airports and go through security checks. We agree to be patted down and we're not surprised nor offended. We have pin cards and our bags are checked before going to concerts or ball games. We don't think about it. They become a part of our daily existence. They're accepted. And so Jesus does not enter into their debate about legitimate loopholes. But look at what he does. Masterfully. He readjusts the plumb line. Setting it to the original blueprint. Going back to the divine plan for marriage. He is changing the question and changing the story. He pictures a world not where we figure out how to make divorce more acceptable, but a world where relationships flourish and there are fewer and fewer divorces. Now there's three things here that we must take a moment to talk about. Three things about this blueprint. Look at these verses. We see three things. Number one, diversity. Marriage is designed for two distinct genders. Male and female. Different yet similar in that each is made in the image of God. They complement one another. Therefore, marriage unites two separate and diverse beings, seeking oneness, yet not sameness, because neither, in, neither individual 
is subsumed or dominated by the other. In this way, in this way, marriage mirrors the being of God, who is diverse yet one. The members of the Trinity united and all equally valued and all complete and fulfilled. This is what marriage was designed to picture. The second thing about this blueprint is not just diversity, but is a promise. Marriage is based on a promise and designed to be permanent. The ESV says here to leave and hold fast. Other versions say to leave and cleave or leave and be united. What does that mean? To cleave means to adhere to, to stick to, to join with. Is a unique joining of two people into one entity. It implies permanence and it requires faithfulness. Look at the third thing. Marriage is designed for intimacy. The two shall become one flesh. One culturally. One economically. One emotionally. One in friendship. One sexually. Thus growing into a true soulmate. Sexual oneness within this promise is introduced here as a picture, a living picture of this intimacy. It is a package deal. Sexual oneness is the complete giving of self in nakedness and vulnerability. And that is a picture of what is supposed to happen spiritually and emotionally. In other words, in marriage, we enter into a covenant saying, this is who I am. This is all I am. And I give myself to you. Diversity, promise, and intimacy. The original blueprint. And so this debate gives Jesus the opportunity to echo the divine plan for marriage from the beginning, a sacred union between one man and woman intended for life. Now, friends, before we see anything else about divorce and remarriage, it is important that we feel the weight and the force of Jesus' words. Okay? Important point. All right. So let's go to the next passage, verses 7 through 8. So if that was God's ideal, Jesus, well then why did Moses allow divorce? I don't get it. Why did Moses permit divorces? The simple answer is this, is that divorce was the lesser of the two problems. The very institution of marriage itself would fall into total disrepair if divorce was not permitted. Let's go back to the section that they're arguing about. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 24 is where it's found. And I think we have a slide for that. Now, I'm going to read this. I want to warn you, I can't answer every question that will arise from reading this passage. It was written in a world far different than our own. And please keep in mind that God works with people and cultures where they are, leading them towards His 
ideals. This was a male-dominant world, and so the male here is addressed. Here's what the law said. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Again, there's a lot there that we can't fully explain this morning. What we want to focus on is verse 1. If something indecent is found in her, this Hebrew word literally means the nakedness of a thing. Now, it's not a precise phrase. It's used uh, broadly. It could refer to different things. One Old Testament scholar said that given the context here, it likely referred to any profane or lewd conduct of lifestyle that was ruining the marriage. Now, keep in mind, it would not refer to adultery because the punishment there was death, not divorce. Now, whether that penalty was actually carried out is not the point. We should realize that adultery would be assumed to be a reasonable cause for divorce. Now, because this word was interpreted broadly, that played into how these two different schools interpreted the word. One school focused on that word anything or something indecent. The Mishnah records about this time, about the, the, the feelings of this time, says this. And the school of Hillel say he may divorce her even if she spoiled a dish for him. Now the conservative school, the school of Shammai, said rather a man may not divorce his wife unless he has found unchastity or sexual sin in her. Now in a moment we're going to see how Jesus would side with the conservative school on this one. So what does all this mean? What are, what are we getting at? The clear teaching of Jesus is that divorce did not reflect the true plan of creation, but rather the hardness of the human heart. And Moses permitted divorce because it was preferred over sinful sexual behavior. Remember the blueprint? How physical love expresses and renews the vows of mutual, exclusive affection. It seals the oath made. One pastor wrote that sexual sin or experiences with another is like signing on the dotted line of someone else. It broke the covenant. And what is being said here is that divorce was not required, it was not commanded, but it was permitted. Now, make a really important point here. The fact that a divorce was granted did not suggest that the one divorcing the guilty party 
was committing a sin. Okay? Let me say it again. The fact that a divorce was granted did not suggest that the one divorcing the guilty party was committing a sin. But rather, the granting of the divorce squares with the evidence that sin had already taken place and it was destroying the marriage. Okay? How are we doing? We doing okay? I'm asking you to digest quite a bit this morning. Let's look at the next passage, verse 9. Now we get to something challenging and something I'm going to spend a little time on this morning because I can't recall us addressing this in a public way, at least for quite some time. So I'm going to take some time with this, and I'm opening up Pandora's box, and it can't be easily closed. So what then does Jesus conclude about divorce and remarriage? He says it in one verse. He has spoken about the blueprint, but as I said, Jesus also deals with the practical concrete of what happens when marriages fail. Jesus is amazing, isn't he? Moving from truth and the ideal, and yet such grace, helping us where we are. How does he summarize this? They came to trap him, but Christ shows he's in harmony with Moses. In verse 9 he says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Now, another version says, except for marital unfaithfulness. And the Greek word that he uses here for sexual immorality is the Greek word pornea. That word is used for all kinds of sexually lewd and immoral behaviors. So it's clear. Jesus is affirming the ruling of Moses that divorce is permitted because of the hardness of heart. And in this context... He affirms that it may be granted only on the grounds of sexual sin in this particular context. Now, one scholar pointed out that pornea seems to refer to sexual sins persisted in. That is, the guilty party has chosen a perverse form of conduct or lifestyle and is not concerned about preserving the sacredness of the marriage. He goes on, it may not require divorce. But permission for divorce under such circumstances is in harmony with the will of the Creator to make sure that marriage remains pure. Again, divorce was the lesser of the two problems. Now, Jesus also comments here on remarriage. And see how adeptly he is, how he turns this around? If husbands were sending their wives away, without just cause to marry another woman, they were thus engaging in the only behavior, sexual sin, that was a just cause for dissolving a marriage. Anyone who divorces his wife for an illegitimate reason and marries commits adultery, adultery being the pinnacle of breaking the marital bond. Now, Go back, if you would, for a moment to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I don't think we have it on the screen. This is where we sort of began our day. We began our day. We didn't look at it, but I referenced it. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 in verse 10. Remember this from two weeks ago. 
Paul said, to the married, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Paul is restating here the principle that Jesus was saying about marriage and remarriage. Particularly here, I think he's dealing with remarriage. Now, what do we take from this? What do we take from this? Four simple things. I'm just going to, like, bullet points here. One, everything humanly possible is to be done to save your marriage. Number one. Number two, remarriage should not be pursued if there remains a possibility of reconciliation and if the marriage bonds have not been broken. Three, if you have experienced a failed marriage, we, you, need to find healing and restoration first so that you can move forward with the Lord. And then four, sort out what went wrong in the first marriage so that if remarriage becomes possible, if that door opens up, I might enter into it with greater understanding and greater wisdom and a greater chance for it to to be successful. Kevin DeYoung, a pastor I really respect in Michigan, he says scholars on all sides of of this debate agree that Jesus is not here ruling out remarriage. First century Jews knew that remarriage was a valid option after a valid divorce. To be granted a legal separation meant you were no longer bound and free to remarry. If Jesus wanted to teach that remarriage after every divorce was unacceptable, he would have had to make that teaching much, much clearer. So now, for some of you, the the invariable question that I've got to try to address here is, so what if my divorce and what if my remarriage does not match Jesus' guidelines? What is Jesus asking me to do now? Now, some of you are in that situation because you simply did not know any better. You were not yet a Christian when all this took place. Others of you had, were in a spiritual community where you received little or even wrong spiritual direction. Now, that does not let you off the hook completely because we each remain responsible to know the commands of Christ and to keep them. But poor leadership can cloud things. And finally, there are some of you that you knew exactly what was right, but you forged ahead anyway. You ignored or you rationalized the words of Jesus to fit what you wanted to do. Again, either way, what do I do in these different scenarios? Well, again, I think the Word of God helps us with this. Because, you see, your situation may not be that much different than the situation the Corinthians found themselves in who, like our culture, had layers of relationships, second, third marriages. And what did Paul say to them? He said, remain in the condition you are in. 
Remain in the condition to which you were called. If now you understand what is right and you desire to please the Lord, do not break the promise to the person that you are now presently with. Stay with them, but now together commit to live for Christ. Commit to know and live by His blueprint. And realize that there, and particularly for the guilty party, there is a work of repentance that must take place in your heart. A gut-level owning up and confession that your divorce or remarriage was outside of God's will. And you may have some restoration work to do with the Lord or with others. You may have need for personal healing or recovery groups like divorce care, which if they are led well, they are phenomenal. Generally, I lost my place. (laughs) I got to get on these rolls, you know, and it's like, okay. You may need to apologize to an ex-spouse or to make amends with children. But friends, remember, in confession and in repentance, there is forgiveness. Some of you are still carrying divorce from a guilt that God wants you to unload and be freed from. There is healing. There is forgiveness. And divorce is not the unforgivable sin. It is not outside of God's reach to forgive you. And we as a church body should affirm and accept those who have suffered failed marriages. We must not assume or judge with prejudice. In many cases, we do not know the circumstances I know of situations where divorced individuals were more faithful in their marriages than what some presently married people are in theirs. And generally speaking, leadership, eldership should not be excluded from a divorced individual. As I said last week, many singles have felt hurt or rejected by the church. It's for a lack of understanding of what the Bible says. Friends, I think it's the same with this, this area as well. Now, for those of you who have been successfully married for decades, rejoice in it. It's a gift of grace. God bless you, for you are an example of what two remade people can accomplish in reclaiming the garden ideal. You are helping to dislodge the societal cynicism about enduring love. But just one gentle, cautionary word to those in that camp. We must never forget that it is by grace alone. For if the goodness and longevity of your marriage becomes a source of pride and a source of self-righteousness, And if you look with contempt on those who are divorced, we will find the divorced person who has repented and humbled themselves to be far closer to God and have a far better grasp of grace than we do. Now, what I'd like to do here is I'd like to take the comments from Rich's talk uh, two weeks ago and take the comments that I've made today 
And I want to give you seven things. We've never done this before, and we just want to try to make it clear for you. Um, many of you, some of you, come to us. You come to us when you want direction and you need guidance in this area. You come to us when you want to remarry. And we have to ask those painful questions about the first marriage. We don't enjoy doing that. But I want to lay out, because I don't think we've done it before, seven things that we believe. I think I represent here both our church history as well as our, our, our pastors. Number one is this. Marriage is, a, is the sacred union between one man and one woman and is intended for life. Let's see if we get that. Not quite. A, that, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get that in a second here. Marriage is a sacred union between one man and one woman and is intended for life, number one. Number two, divorce is not always sinful. Divorce is not always sinful. Number three, divorce is permitted but not required on the grounds of sexual immorality. Divorce is permitted but not required on the grounds of sexual immorality. Number four, divorce is permitted but not required on the grounds of an, the desertion of an unbelieving spouse. Rich went over this two weeks ago. Okay, that's the fourth. Now let me, let me take, a, take a little, another, open a box here. And let me dive into this a little bit here. Because I have to answer a question that a lot of you have. Are there other exceptions? Are there other grounds for divorce? Jesus gave one, then Paul expanded on it in 1 Corinthians to, to, to apply Christ's word to that situation. Are there other grounds? I'd like to share again the sentiments of Kevin DeYoung, who his sentiments exactly captured what I have wrestled with and thought about this topic. Let me share these with you. He writes that traditionally Protestant churches and most evangelicals have held these two exceptions. I am sympathetic, yet extremely cautious about finding other grounds. If we say yes, we open a Pandora's box of trouble. People will argue that psychological abuse, which is hard to define, or emotional neglect, or maybe terrible unhappiness is a grounds, is grounds for divorce. I think it is safer biblically to maintain that there are two acceptable grounds of divorce. Okay. But having said that, I would not rule out the possibility of extreme situations where your elders might conclude that this man or this woman has not completely disappeared, but their refusal to change Their refusal after repeated warnings is tantamount to desertion of the marriage vows. They are so strung out on drugs. They gamble away all their worldly possessions and your children's next meal. Or the man who repeatedly physically beats and abuses his wife. Which let me just say flat out, right out, if you are in that situation... Please get out of it as soon as you can and get to a place that is safe where you can work with a pastor or work with a counselor 
to figure out the next best steps to take to remedy that situation. I believe in these cases where bonds may be so broken that they're beyond repair. And I believe that God will give local churches, the elders of local churches, wisdom to judge these exceptional cases in the light of the whole of Scripture and in light of the whole of the circumstances that are before them in order to make wise and just and loving judgments for people that come to us asking for help. Here's number five, okay? A lot there for you for us to process. Number five. That was all under number four. Number five, when the divorce was not valid in God's eyes, remarriage results in adultery. Number six, in situations where divorce is valid, remarriage is valid. And number seven, improperly divorced and remarried Christians should stay as they are, but repent and be forgiven of their past sins and make whatever amends necessary. Those seven things help to give some direction and guidance when you ask questions about issues of marriage, issues of divorce, and issues of remarriage. Now, let me close by going back to the Scripture. I know I've given you a ton to think about this morning and a ton to digest, and hopefully we'll have plenty of healthy, spirited, vibrant um, lunchroom conversations and uh, lunchtime conversations about what Pastor Chris shared this morning. But going back to our passage in Matthew 19, let me just finish by looking at the final few verses. Verse 10. If you needed a little evidence about the measure of cynicism regarding marriage in the religiously charged world of Jesus, it's right here. The disciples, the disciples, these are God's guys. These are the next leaders. Look at what they say. If such is, you know, if there is no easy divorce, it's better not to marry. That's how low it had sunk. They're cynical. And I want to say this morning that it is true that without the gospel, without Christ in us, marriage is impossible. And yet with the gospel, when the kingdom breaks in, when the kingdom of God breaks into our world, and it has begun, God promised to make His believers into new creatures. We are reconstituted. We are remade according to the image of our Creator. And we now have the power and the capacity to reclaim the garden ideal. And I want to tell you something, and I say this with... I, I, I hope there's not a hint of self-righteousness or pride in this, but there are many examples of couples in this church, many of them your pastors, who are into their third or fourth decade of marriage. And I want to tell you, it has gotten sweeter. It has gotten more intimate. It has gotten closer. It is not, as Leo Tolstoy wrote many, many years ago, inevitable that every couple becomes roommates. Because they cannot work through their disappointments. They cannot work through their differences. But there are couples in this room, there are couples in this church, who it is sweeter, it is fresher, it is more vibrant, and they are in their third, fourth, and fifth decades of marriage. The ideal is attainable. Enduring love is attainable. 
And it's attainable for those who have been remade, reconstituted within the image of God. As newborn people. As reborn people. With the power of the Spirit and the power of God working in us. Without Christ, it's impossible. With Christ, all things are possible. Including following the blueprint that Christ laid out. And then he goes on again. Jesus alludes to and gives affirmation to uh, single adulthood. Now, just FYI, he is not endorsing self-mutilation. That was against, that was against Judaism. That's not the intent that we should make from what he's saying. But Christ is affirming that some will be able to live out in this world without being married, and they will be able to do explosive, powerful, amazing things for the kingdom of God as single men and women. There are so many examples of that. And Jesus himself, again, here, does not want his church to believe that married life, even that ideal, is the only viable pathway to be blessed, used, and in the blessing of God. And therefore, Paul himself again reinforces the teachings of Jesus, but they begin with the Master himself, revealing to us a way of life that we would have never thought possible. We would have settled, what norms, can you imagine? What norms would we have settled into without Christ reintroducing us back? to the glorious ideal and the ideals in the garden. Pray with me. Father, thank you for these few moments we could spend together immersed in your word. Learning. Learning about the power of your will. Learning about the power of your design helping us, I trust Holy Spirit, wherever we are today to hold on and capture the very will of God for our lives. Father, we love you. We thank you for the opportunity now to give back to you, to to thank you for your word, to thank you for your wisdom, to pray together, to give of our resources to in every way we possibly can to sing to you, to rejoice in you, and to communicate that you are number one. You are first place. You are worth everything. You are worth everything. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.